Welcome back to our delicious conversation with Emily Chang. She is the author of The Spare Room. You have got to read this book. You have, it's outstanding the work that she's doing in the world at a legacy level. Uh, Emily is a seasoned executive who is the CEO of McCann World Group in China. She has worked with some of the world's most prestigious companies, Apple, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, uh, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks. And over the last 20, 22 years, she has, her, her and her family have lived in uh, eight different homes across the US and China. And while she's been living there, she has been living her purpose. And that's what we've been talking about uh, uh, in part one about her spare room. We've been talking about in part one about what this spare room is, uh, what is the philosophy behind it, and uh, how it's impacted uh, her daughter, a uh, young daughter, and her husband, and how she's able to live this. Uh, and we want to we want to dive more into this as we go into part two of the show. Um, one of the things that I really found interesting is um, when, when we talk about this, Emily, is you, like I said, you have taken in all these different children, 16 children, and, and yet you've been outside of the system. So, uh, one of our guests on here, you may or may not know recently was Peter Samuelson. Peter Samuelson is the producer of a movie called Foster, Child, Foster Boy, uh, which shows really it's a beautiful film, but it shows the holes in the foster system that is for money. It's for profit and how kids are abused because of it. And, you know, one of the things you were saying is that in China, um, that system is not very good um, at all. And that one of the things I heard you say was that, uh, you and I had talked about in a previous conversation about ghost children that during the one child uh, mandate, the kids who were born outside of that sort of were disposed of, uh, abandoned, and don't have paperwork and become these non-existent children, ghost children. Talk to us a little bit about living in that world and and around that, because I imagine living in the, you know, you live in Shanghai, which is like this hustling, bustling, what did you say? How many people? Uh, a couple million. <laughs> yeah, like, I think the latest number is 20 million, something like right, that. So 20 million people, it's easy to get caught in the hustle and bustle and not pay attention to all that. And yet you do. So talk to us a little bit about, because that seems like a juxtaposition. You know, you, you've got this hustle, bustles, you're the big cheese in the in the corporate world. And yet you're noticing things that other people don't notice, including these ghost children. Talk to us a little, give people a, a framework of what that is, that ghost child situation. Well, yeah, to talk about the ghost child situation first, it is driven by a mandate that was um, passed down a couple a couple decades ago that kind of said, we need to manage population. So we're going to mandate that every child, every family has one child. And, and if, you know, people want their family legacies continued on or looking at it a different way. Um, there isn't a social, social uh, security system. So in my old age, I don't really have that to rely on. So I need my child to care for me. Mm -hmm. And if I believe that a boy will become a man and can better care for me and provide for himself, then I will prioritize having a boy. And if I only have one shot and I have a girl first, 
then I'm going to make a hard call in some cases so that I can try again and have that boy carry on my family name, um, set him up for greater success and set myself up for somebody to take care of me in my, my old age. And I think, you know, not, not all systems are great, but not all systems are evil. There's a reason behind the one child policy. There's a reason people make the choices they make. Everyone's everyone faces equally hard choices, whether it's at government or at the personal level. And I think that's equally true in every country. This one is just probably, it stands out a little bit more because of how different it is uh, on an international stage. So ghost children or in Chinese, we call them. Hey, is a reference to children who were born who lived, but don't have a family or any official paperwork. So they look, they're, they're unofficial and, you know, sort of, they're not on paper in existence. So when we see the population of China, obviously they're they're not included. Right. Right. That's why even when you ask me about the population, it's a relatively agile number. It depends on whether it's publicly reported or does it include migrants who don't always have paperwork either? Does it include all the children? Migrants are allowed to have more or (laughs) the official versus the unofficial number, I think varies pretty widely. Yeah. I mean, because that, I mean, we know there's a, you know, largest population in a single country is in China, but now we go, whoa, there's a lot more that we never even like it never crosses people's mind that these children are walking around with no paperwork. And of course, many of them become adults and, you know, so now they're adults without paperwork. They who officially don't exist. I mean that, you know, talk about an identity crisis. Wow. I think it's an identity crisis and I think it's a risk. I mean, you, you and I spoke personally about um, sex trafficking. Yeah. And I mean, nothing sets you up to be more vulnerable than not having any paperwork. Yeah. If you don't exist, I mean, all of it, I mean, as you know, you and I talked about it before, but the my investigation into uh, people who had been sex trafficked, and the numbers are horrendous, as you know, um, m- most of them are trafficked because they don't have an attachment. They don't have a family and they're easy targets. Okay. What are you going to do? You know, right. Where are you going to run to? There's nothing there for you. And if you don't even have a piece of paper to say, this is who I am, you know, it's, it's pretty much a, a losing battle. It's horrendous. So, but like I said, you operated outside of this system because, you know, I, if I found a kid in the road, and I brought the kid home and I live in Canada, I think somebody would report that. And I think I'd be in trouble. And, you know, you can't do that. There's a system, right? It may be a screwed system, but there is a system. So, so I'm trying to get my head around this and I'm sure many people are. How does that work? Cause um, you talked about uh, Teo, you know, uh, and so let's, let's go a little bit into the story of Teo and, how you came about Teo and and maybe this is going to give us more context. Sure. Yeah, of course. So Teo is every kid has come to us through just a unique circumstance. We, we met Teo because there was a nonprofit we worked with, with the previous kid who's not in the book. Her name was Rosie. And, and the reason we took Rosie in is because we lived in an apartment complex where there are two apartments per floor and our neighbors who shared the floor with us had taken in this little girl, Rosie, and they were going home for the summer and they weren't able to take her because she didn't 
belong to them. <laughs> so she was going to go back into the system for the summer. And they, they just reached out and said, look, she sees you every day. She's familiar here. Could you guys keep her for the summer? So that's, that's how we got to bring Rosie into our home. And she was adorable. She's a whole other story. That's just unbelievable. I mean, and this is, this is part of what I shared in the first session. I wanted to write the book. She was born with protruding spina bifida. And I didn't, I didn't oh. know what that was. It's when your spine is literally protruding from your body. Yep. And you know, a lot of babies in developed countries end up kind of hanging in traction because it's incredibly painful and they can't obviously lie on their backs. So, so she was born with such an obvious physical deformity. She was left by a roadside where she was then run over by a car. Oh my goodness. And uh, left by the roadside and then run over. Yeah. Oh yeah. First 24 hours of life weren't so easy. And a police officer picked her up. She was still alive, brought her to a hospital and some wonderful people uh, took very good care of her. So, so our next door neighbors took her into their home. When they heard about her story, she was, when she came into our home that summer, I think she was about 16 months old, 15 months old and was still paralyzed from the waist down. She had a catheter. Uh, but she could kind of wriggle around and, and super, super cute little thing. So we had to learn how to take care of a catheter. And, and so this nonprofit said, yeah, you, you can take care of her for this family. We know this family, but we want to come in and check out your home rightfully and, and also teach you how to take care of this little baby. So it was that nonprofit later, by the way, Rosie has a wonderful story. She was formally adopted by our neighbors. She now lives in the States. And by the way, despite all and any medical reason she runs around. I have a video that her mom sent me recently of her rock climbing. I mean, she's just, what? she's incredible. Yeah. That's the, fantastic. Mir again, it, it's just like, I don't know how you don't call it a miracle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was Rosie. And because of Rosie and that situation with our neighbors, we knew this nonprofit. They called us a little while later and they said, we've got this little boy. We're like, oh gosh, that wasn't really our thing. We didn't really you know, <laughs> and then they called again and they said, but he's dying. We only need somebody to keep him in a home for a couple of days because the orphanage doesn't have heat. You know, nobody has time to take care of him. He's really disruptive to all the other children because he screams in pain constantly. Okay. And we're like, okay, our daughter is pretty young, like even more. No. So, so I think there's a conclusion here, which is we are not kind generous, magnanimous people. We, we responded very selfishly. We're like, that, that is not a good idea. You know, and it was the third time they called us. They said, look, we, every time we think of him, we think of your family. Would you please consider it? We said, okay, okay. We will definitely consider it. We hung up. My little daughter comes around the corner. You know, she must've still been three or four, four. Cause she still had her little, she couldn't quite say her R as I remember. And she was like, mom, who's that baby you talking about? And I said, well, it's sort of like Rosie, but really different. This little boy so his, his background is he'd been born with hydrocephalus where your cerebral spinal fluid can go up, but for a variety of medical reasons, it can't come back down. So for him, there's like a little flap that only went one way, not the other. So that the fluid swells in the head, a baby's head is still soft. So the head swells and it causes an unbelievable amount of pressure and pain. And his case was relatively extreme. His eyes were almost popped out of his head. He couldn't blink. He couldn't move. He was really um, almost in a vegetative state when we first met him and just, just screaming in pain because his parents didn't want to get rid of him. Even though there was a one-child policy, they wanted to save up enough money to try and get him the surgery he needed. So they did. And it was only when he was at 16 months that they were able to pay for the surgery. They gave him to a doctor, didn't really understand what had to happen. 
the doctor drilled a hole in the baby's skull, gave him back and said he had installed a shunt that slowly allows that cerebral spinal fluid to drip out of the head down into the esophagus, into the stomach and pass through the body. And then eventually the head shrinks and all is, all is much, much better. But the parents didn't realize that he didn't have the shunt installed. All they knew was their baby was leaking liquid and screaming and they didn't know what to do with him. And they'd given, you know, they'd given. So he drilled a hole in the head, but he hadn't installed the shunt. Right. What kind of a ruthless bastard was he? Oh my God. You know, I, I get, I'm with you on people make difficult choices for difficult reasons. And then there are assholes. Yeah. And then there are assholes. Yeah. Right, that that <laughs> falls into the asshole category, right? Yes, Ashloch. that is right. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> in German. That's an ashlock. <laughs> yeah. You just have to believe that, you know, <laughs> that comes around, that sure. comes around. So, so he ended up at an orphanage because the parents realized that he wasn't going to make it. They couldn't care for him anymore. The orphanage found the nonprofit and said, what are we going to do? The nonprofit said, we need to do a proper surgery, but we're not sure that he can sustain that. We need to get him out of the situation. That's when they called us. Right. So, so when he came to our home, you know, he was like leaking brain fluid. He was screaming in pain, completely immobile barely moving. And I remember speaking to this woman at the nonprofit and she said, but I know all hope isn't lost because when my husband puts his hand over Mateo's face, his eyes will sometimes follow the watch. So he likes shiny things. And I still remember her sharing that that was the extent to which he moved. His eyes were caught by a watch that went in front of him. Nothing else moved, no reaction. It was only later that he even learned to grunt to, to vocalize even, uh, even a small sound. And he, he really was in a lot of pain. He screamed. Man, how old he was at that point. He was about 18 months old when he first came wow. into our home. Wow. And, you know, to your first question in the first session, Lainey never once complained. She was four and, you know, he, he would wake us all up screaming at night and she'd be like, mom, can you get him? I'm like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going, go back to bed. She never complained. She never said, I wish we didn't have him, not once. And eventually the nonprofit is amazing because they paid for the surgery. They upfront. Did you? Okay. You paused there. Sorry. Go on. They upfront okay. what? They upfront um, paid for and provided his diapers, his formula, the medicine for his seizures. All we had to do was love him. It's, it's kind of an incredible model. And then over time, after the surgery, he started to kind of move around a little bit and he learned to vocalize, like I said, and still his CAT scan showed that there was essentially no brain. So when you look at an x-ray, you will see a skull yep. and you will see it filled up with, with brain tissue. And sure. his was just empty. So we were told he would never be able to understand anything, never be able to speak, never be able to move because there's no balance. And, you know, I'll just fast forward to today real quick. He can stand up. He puts himself to bed. He feeds himself. He talks. He loves to sing Justin Bieber. He engages completely. I mean, this kid, again, defies science in every possible way by who he is and how he lives. And did, did the, the size of his skull come down again? Not really, because it was sort of hardened at that point. So we believe um, he will always have some mental challenges, um, but eventually physically his body will grow into it and he'll just look like a dude with a big head. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I I can relate to that. (laughs) 
I, my, my, uh, um, I, I, uh, I got a cut on my head and, um, my wife made fun of me and, you know, cause she's funny and she, she called me bucket head and it was like, yeah, I know I got a bucket head, right? It's, it's not insulting. Not for me anyway, but you know what I mean? It's like, okay. You know, and then one, the, like the week after we read this thing from Harvard medical or something about people with big heads have big brains. And I was and like, she goes, Oh, you're clinging to that. And you're like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm holding on to that one for life. <laughs> so, you know, th that is fascinating. So have they done brain scans on him since and, and it, do they see the brain or is everything okay? There's still, it looks like there's still nothing in there, but you know, we, we just watch him develop and don't have to feel discouraged about what science tells us. I, I still remember we were in the process of adopting him ourselves. And so we, we had to go through this counseling, this medical counseling, and they wanted to really level set expectations of, of you know, here's, here's what future looks like taking care mm -hmm. of him for the rest of your lives. And I remember we went to the US, we flew to the US for this and our friends kept Laney here in Shanghai at that point. And so we we're in Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati Children's, and she was doing her best to explain, explain to us and, and, and with very positive intent. She was saying, he'll never understand anything you say. And I said, I, I don't believe that. I, and in fact, I know that's not true because we have this whiteboard behind where we eat dinner together in our apartment. And every time he says a word that's not mimicking us, he says it of his own and he knows what it means. We put that word on the board and it started off just with one or two words and we're up to nine, you know, at that point. And then by the time he left our family, it was up to 200. So this doctor said, no, there's no way, there's no way he understands anything. Look at this x-ray. I said, I'm looking at it. I understand you, but I promise you, he can say jie, which means elder sister in Chinese. And he can say, my favorite word he said was awi, which was orange and oranges are his favorite fruit. So he would just say, awi, right. like, come on. He, of course he knows what he's saying. And so that night I remember, and I wrote about this in, in his chapter, we left the hospital and we were discouraged. We, you know, because how could you not be? But I looked at my husband and I just said, we're going to have to cling to what we know. And what we see with our own eyes. And there was a Toys R Us across the parking lot. And we, I, we went in to go get my daughter a little gift. And we walked by this, you know, those cheap plastic kits. And it was a golf kit. Oh, and yeah. I was like, well, let's get that for him. Because one day he's going to stand up and he's going to be able to play with it. And again, my sweet, quiet husband kind of looked at me and went, okay. And we, we kept that golf kit for years. And it was just in the back of the closet. We moved, we moved to the States, you know, to write the book. And when we were in the States, um, Teo was there with his family. And I think at that point they were living in Los Angeles and we brought, I found that golf kit and it was like beaten up. I think the top cardboard thing was broken and we were going to see visit Teo. And I remember being at the airport and my daughter's like, we were, at, we were waiting in line at Starbucks. So I'm trying to carry like my luggage and this crappy golf kit and my coffee. And she's like, mom, what is this gift? Surely we can do better for Teo. <laughs> and so I told her this whole story about that one night when she was too little to remember. I said, remember when, when dad and I went to the States for his adoption and you were in China for a few days, we bought this thing. We brought it back. It's traveled all over. And you know what? We're bringing it because he can now stand up and he's going to be able to use it. And she was like, oh yeah, that's a great gift. <laughs> so medically he's the boy with no brain yeah yeah wow 
I, I, I've spoken about this on one of the shows I did with a neuroscientist. And I said that where I got interested in neuroscience as a kid was I saw this documentary on the BBC and it was about people who had um, parts of their brain missing. And, um, you know, they were doing this whole thing around mapping the brain and trying to work out what part of the brain did what. And yet there were these people that in the x-rays showed that they had a big hole in their brain or a chunk of their brain was missing, or they had a whole brain and they had to have a surgery and a piece of it was removed. And, you know, they'll never do this and never do that. And another part of the brain took over. And sometimes they just had a thin rim of brain, but they were, right. they didn't know they had that until something happened and they had an x-ray. And so it brings this wonderful scientific curiosity around Hold on a second. If you're the boy with no brain, then you can't function scientifically, yet you function. You are the absolute in the face evidence that you're wrong. And, you know, I know neuroscientists and I know neurosurgeons would go, that's just not possible. Mm -hmm. But here he is. So, where is his brain? Right. I mean, it's it's there. It just maybe doesn't look like the form in which we understand the brain to look. So it's like for me, I, when I when you were talking about that with me before, I was like, wow, that is like I want to go down that road for a couple of months, you know, just exploring where is his brain, taking him for brain scans, having him with neurosurgeons and neuroscientists and talking about what what is this really? Because I think he's an anomaly to the science that could actually advance us and make us think about the brain in a very different way. You know, for me, he is, he brings the, the, the science to, to a point of going, okay, we might have something wrong. Fascinating. It is. I guess if I'm totally scientifically accurate, he looks like he has no brain, but to your point, the doctor said that the brain has just been um, dramatically sheared. So there are probably edges of tissue around the edge of the skull. One thing I'll do, I just made a note, is on my website, I will post that CAT scan. So if people want to have a look yeah. at it, um, they can they can see what we were looking at. And it yeah. looks empty, but you know, again, a, a, along the edges of the skull, there's probably there's tissue there, and that seems to be enough for him to operate the way that he does today. But he's he's speaking, he's standing, he's, speaking, he's singing, he engages, he understands what you're saying. Right, he well, remembers it's not enough with a little bit of a little bit of brain tissue around the edge officially. So he's doing far beyond what that would be. That you're is right. amazing. I'll tell you, there are two things that we really can't explain. One, you know, you know, when you're watching a cartoon and you're like, God, that voice is so familiar, but because I can't see the face, I don't know that it's Scarlett Johansson or whatever, that, that neurological connection that you need to make is a unique one. And it's hard for us as highly functioning adults, right? Yeah. We were video calling with Teo's family. And for some reason their screen was black, but we could see them. It happens sometimes. Sure. So we were just talking to them and we could see Teo coming down the stairs behind them and, and kind of walking up to them. And we were talking and we're like, oh, Teo, hi, can you, you can't see us, can you? And he just went, mama, did you? And then he went, where's Gigi? I want to have a smoothie. Where's Gigi? I want to go to the park. I mean, he, he right away without even seeing us knew our voices, which is, are somewhat distorted on a phone call anyway. I just found yeah. that moment to be like, oh my God, what isn't he capable of? 
And the other thing that's amazing, and his mom and I always talk about this, there were songs that I used to sing to him when he was a baby, right? Things that we don't remember our babyhood. Lini and I were just talking about a memory the other night. She's like, I don't remember that. And she has a great memory, but she was five. But there are moments when he sees me, he'll cuddle on my lap and sing a song that his mom's never heard before. And it's something I used to sing to him when he was a baby. So he, there's something there, you know, I don't know enough about the science to explain that or where that sits in your brain, but that's still there. Or maybe it's just in your heart. This boy is definitely a miracle. Well, I mean, we know uh, that, you know, uh, scientists will tell us that there are three brains, that there is the prefrontal cortex, that, you know, the, the brain is divided into three main parts and that's fine. But what we also forget to look at is there is the brain in the gut mm-hmm. um, that exists and the neurons in the gut and there, is, there are neurons in the heart. Mm-hmm. And so the neurons in the heart and the neurons in the gut, and, and we know from much scientific inquiry that um, it's a very good chance that memories are not held in the brain as in up here, right? We, we don't know some of it, you know, quantum theorists suggest that memories are held in the field um, as in external of us and that we access them. Whereas other, other scientists are talking about that memories may actually be held in the heart, depending on what they are emotionally or in the gut. What we do know is memory does not exist without emotion. Mm-hmm. We know, sure. You don't remember a damn thing without emotion. That's why you've sat in class, you've learned shit, you've even taken notes on it, but you were totally uninterested and you can't remember any of it three minutes later because you were not emotionally engaged. Yeah. It's the reason you went to school, you had a teacher, you hated the subject because it was so damn boring. And then you got a different teacher for the same subject and you loved it because you were emotionally engaged and you remembered it all in your past. So nice. there's something going on with him that just makes me go, you can see I'm getting excited. <laughs> like a, I'm chomping at the bit to go, Oh my God. Like, you know, how do we find out more? This, this kid's, you know, officially I, you know, would put him in the category of a miracle. I'm actually uh, him and Rosie and all of them, you know, miraculous, but, there's a scientific yeah. miraculous here that is mind blowing, opening up for what people can think about and understand it, and really to understand the, the magnificence and the complexity of who we are biologically, neurologically, as well as spiritually and emotionally and psychologically and what we are capable of beyond what we officially can or can't do. It's, it's, it's amazing. What a, what an, but here's the thing, Emily, for me, what an uh, absolute blessing to, to be able to have a front row seat to these miracles, but the price you paid, I don't think most people will pay the price of admission. Most people would go, hold on a minute, kids screaming all night. Uh, he's got a head that makes him look like it's some kind of alien from a movie show. And, you know, he's going to die soon. I'm out. Or this kid is an abandoned child who was thrown in a garbage can with spina bifida. I'm out. They're not going to pay the price of admission for the miracle. And, and I think that's a, a, there's a price. There's always a price of admission for a miracle. They're not free. And the fact that you have been willing to pay that price, not once, but 16 times, 
and when I say you, I mean that collectively, you, your husband and your daughter, is bloody amazing. Well, I think we were eased into it. If we first met Teo when I was, you know, I was 19 and or 20 and dating my husband, maybe not, probably not. <laughs> right. But but Leah was the first girl who stayed with us, very self-sufficient, teenager, um, on many levels, like a little sister and relatable. So it was easy to say yes to her, you know, and, and I didn't say yes for her to live with me for four months. I said, I just said, let's get her out of this sleeting rain. Let's get her a meal. And then as she started to head back out, let's just give her one night of rest. And then one night very easily turned into another night. And then two nights turns into a week. So you ease into things because mm -hmm. if you asked me at that age, would you take in a teen prostitute off the street for four months? Of course I would have said no, but right. I think we are, we are capable of far more than we think, but life has this wonderful, generous ability to ease us into it so that we find ourselves in this place. And after meeting Leah, and then after meeting some of these other people that we've had the absolute privilege and joy of serving, then you, then you meet the Rosie and you're like, Oh gosh, that's not super easy. I, I don't really know how to take care of a baby with a catheter, but I can figure that part out. Right. And it's for our neighbors and we love our neighbors. And the alternative is an orphanage. So of course, and then when they call about Teo, Again, I want to be honest and say we said no twice, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, and it was really Lainey who convinced us to say yes. And we, we only thought we were saying yes for a couple of days. And How days long was he with you? About three years on and off because we were always trying to find him a, a forever family. So when there's a family interested, we would move him with them and then, you know, he would come back. So, so that's why I was on and off, but yeah, I, I don't want it to sound like we will sign up for something others won't. I think we were eased into it and we received so much more than we gave. So that, that formula that we're contributing more than we consume, I think when it comes to the spare room, it's very equal. We do contribute, but we also benefit in such incredibly rich ways that I, I did a taxi chat recently with my daughter. And I said, when the next kid comes along, do you have any hesitation now that you're just about a teenager and our life is in a different place? We haven't had a kid for a whole year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> she, her immediate reaction, she didn't even pause. There wasn't even a break. She just said, yes, of course. So for her, it's just, it's that easy. And it's not because she's this magnanimous soul. It's because she goes, mom, it's just what we do. And, and that's what I mean. It's sort of become each of, it's part of who we are. It's built a lot of our own intentionality and who we want to be at home as individuals, as a family. And I think, you know, again, it transpires into who we want to be at work as leaders. We're already at the end of part two, and um, in part three, I want to talk about your formula for purpose because, uh, as you know, I do a lot of work around purpose with organizations and with individuals, and I, I often bump up against that I feel like most people have purpose ass about front. They don't actually know what it is. They've got it wrong. They're usually looking to, well, this is my passion. It must be my purpose. Yeah, not so much. I, um, and you look at it in a way that is completely different than almost anybody I've met. Um, and it's, it's inspiring and it's courageous. And I want to really address that as we, as we come in again, please tell people where they can find out about you as we come to the end of this particular part of the show. Of course. So the website is social-legacy.com. And I have a, a number of pages there on blogs and content that didn't make the book, like the story I shared earlier. I'll also post 
some x-rays of lit of Teo and maybe even a video of what he's like today. So you can just see how he interacts. Oh, you can find me on socials at the spare room book and you can buy the book. Just search the spare room social legacy. Thank you so much. And again, we'll be back in just one click for part three of our delicious conversation with Emily Chang. And she's the author of the spare room. We'll see you very soon. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. See you one click from now.